Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with Matt Offenbacher, and it's a little bit of a sad day, but a happy day. The last episode you listened to, I think we were going into, I forget which game it was. Was it game seven? I think we were about to hit game seven. Okay. Well, if anyone pays attention to baseball, you probably know that it's not the Astros in the World Series, but it's our uh, friends of the North, not far North, but the Texas Rangers. Matt, how did the season end? And there is some silver lining though, which we just mentioned. So how's everything in the baseball world? Well, it would be better if the Astros were playing in the World Series, but here we are. I mean, it was a frustrating Game 7. I think everybody knows that. I talked a lot of trash to Rangers people, and they kept receipts, so that's been tough, but it also made me a huge Diamondbacks fan. I may still get my day. So James actually and I had like a debrief on this, and it was like, okay, this isn't like 2019. I mean, we talk a lot of baseball for a Drilling Fluids podcast, but 2019, (laughs) if you're an Astros fan, is the most heartbreaking That is the best Astros team ever. Okay. Like, just unbelievable. Number one, number two pitcher. The lineup was just loaded. How we managed to lose and not only let it even get to seven games is, like, incomprehensible. 2021, the Astros lost the World Series, but nobody really thought they were going to make it anyways. It was like, you know what? It's Braves year. Good for them. I'm not bitter. And this is very much, you know, we really didn't play that well this season and had pretty low expectations. It was just, you sort of started getting a taste that you could get away with it and you didn't because you hadn't played that well all season. So yeah, this too shall pass, but mm-hmm. there's always next year. Yeah. There'll be a new manager, which I think will be very good for the team. Is there any word of who it's going to be? There's just the rumors. So the bench coach, Joe Espada, some people have, have mentioned him, which I think would be cool. He's interviewed for a lot of other positions and not gotten them. So I don't know, like if mm. he's very well liked. And then Brad Ausmus, who used to be affiliated with the Astros, although he's had other manager roles and, Bad team ownership, probably, and some other things maybe limited his ability to do much. Yeah. Who knows? It's baseball. Yeah. And Dusty Baker's no longer around. Did he retire? Was it forced retirement? Or do you know? I think he retired knowing that he would be retired if he didn't (laughs) retire. But that's the thing. Amazing guy in the realm of baseball. Yeah. I just wish he wasn't managing my team. (laughs) So he's a Hall of Famer guy, no question. I wish him a lovely retirement yeah but uh, yeah very cool well next year again like you said next year will be fun a lot of returning players or do you know yeah so quite a few are locked up it's the next couple of years are what really matter you know Mm. there'll be a couple of guys that'll probably get picked up as free agents but like those extensions do you spend the money do you not you know it's a tougher choices coming i think fascinating yeah well i'm sure every once in a while if there's any good news we'll make it aware so the audience can keep up with it if whether they like it or not. Yeah, if they want to know what happened three weeks ago on <laughs> in Astros baseball, this is your source. Right. <laughs> it's not real time, but it's real Matt time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so you don't talk to Matt, then you get to kind of hear him out and his opinions on the decisions that are made in Astros world. But anyway, as we move along into the drilling fluid space, Matt, one thing that's been kind of interesting over the years is we've made some big strides in drilling efficiencies. And what that looks like is when you take a certain amount of footage per year 
it takes a certain amount of rigs to get there. But the amount of rigs to drill a certain amount of footage per year continues to drop because we're able to drill more footage per day. And so we need less equipment to drill that amount of footage. And when you look at that from a drilling fluids perspective, although you're drilling the same amount of footage, there are some things to consider and how that actually impacts drilling fluids. But I think it'd be interesting to talk about and maybe nothing like too groundbreaking, but at least the conversation to talk about why and how maybe for drilling more in a day or over the course of a pad faster, how that might impact us. What do you think about it? Well, it's quite interesting because everybody who was using rig count for the longest time is sort of this bellwether as to what the industry is up to. Yeah. And it's just not a reliable measure just by way of, if you look at the rig count 10 years ago, or, you know, you go down to footage and people are drilling longer lengths. Mm -hmm. It's a bit ironic too, as an aside. So We've gone back to footage, and that used to be something that wasn't as big of a deal. And in fact, the only place where we would talk about like footage drilled was actually meters drilled. Mm. When I was in like former Soviet countries, they would benchmark not by wells or it was meters drilled, which usually included four or five side tracks and all this other <laughs> stuff. And that's how their bonuses were handed out, not by like wells delivered or anything like that. It was sort of a like, well, you did drill that far and then you left a BHA in the hole and sidetrack and there was always sort of this loaded like we're shifting the goalposts to get our bonuses not necessarily like but now it's like no these rigs are drilling further no question we're not playing a game or anything like that yeah I've had to kind of get over that mental hurdle but I think this ties in nicely if you haven't listened to I mean Fred Dupreece has been on a number of podcasts and you name it he makes himself available he's a great educator Mm -hmm. and we were fortunate to have him we broke it up into two part series on what he calls limiter redesign and keeping in mind that we are talking about a drilling system physics based drilling as some may call it our fluids play a role at some point they can become a limiter by not being able to provide energy to get cuttings out or you name it. Yeah. So we're part of that system. And as drilling efficiency changes, your limiters change too. The prime example, of course, I think is way back when, when we started drilling longer laterals and didn't have the pumps Mm -hmm. and we got the pumps and it wasn't a limiter anymore. And we don't talk about hole cleaning like we used to. It's not a limiter, but do we drill further out and we don't have the pumps again? Like these things are like ebbing and flowing and kind of understanding what's holding you up as you go is an important part of recognizing that drilling efficiency, mm-hmm. especially as it gets better. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like, would you say right now, with the increase in drilling efficiencies, to further increase the efficiencies, do you think we're limited because of drilling fluids? Or is there a hang-up there for us? I don't think so. I think we're seeing elements of it just by way of because I don't think it's like the whole cleaning issue, but I do think torque, which is something that we can't 100% address, but we can help with. The further out you drill, the more that matters. I think some of those things, even from directional control, which is once again tied to torque, some of those things I think we're party to. I think even the longer you go out horizontally, the bigger your ECD swing. So are there elements of fluid consistency and quality that could limit stressing your wellbore and inducing cavings or inducing losses. Those are things where we may have to optimize better than we have been. So it's not necessarily limiting us, yeah. but we may start placing limits on ourselves saying, look, don't just pump as hard as you possibly can. Keep it between 610 and 640 GPMs mm-hmm. because you get above that and you start running into a riskier territory this far away from the lateral or from the vertical. Yeah. It's an important part to know why you're doing what you're doing. And then it's important to reassess whether that behavior is pertinent 
as you start pushing limits further out. Right. And the one thing that comes to mind is a lot of times, like if you're able to drill a lot more in a single day, clearly you're generating more cuttings over a certain period of time. Mm. What I think, although hole cleaning is not as much of a challenge just because of the pump capacity that we have, but understanding subsurface what's happening when you are generating that much cuttings. And I think how it's impacting us is how we model hole cleaning and not necessarily because it's an issue, but then you come into like density management. Mm -hmm. We did a really big study for an operator in South Texas where there's a very weak formation and typically we would have to add certain products to mitigate risk and losses. But what we found through kind of doing a deep dive in the hole cleaning and modeling and running like several different sensitivities it's like you actually speed up by slowing down mm-hmm. in a funny way. We really had to kind of shift our mindset with hole cleaning and ROP and pump rate, taking the conventional wisdom, putting it aside and letting the data give us a bit of a roadmap while then implementing experience and just overall drilling knowledge because you can't just rely on certain models. But with a combination of the two and some really smart people looking at it, we were able to, again, drill some record wells all while controlling ROP and slowing down pump rate in certain intervals. It's really interesting. And although we were able to drill faster, we did some things that would have went against conventional wisdom in terms of like, just mash on it. I mean, and this is, besides that's fantastic engineering, which I wish we were doing more of across the board. It takes the operator too. Oh, of course, of course. You got to get everybody on board. And I think a lot of the operators are like, we've been down this road before. And the outcomes weren't either what they'd hoped for or they weren't as insightful. And so it was like, well, you have to keep testing these things. You have to keep revisiting with new information how your tools behave. Because I think it's like instantaneous versus average ROP, right? Mm -hmm. Some people are just like, oh, the break and we'll figure it out. Then it's a muds problem. The only thing slowing me down is me. And then you'd realize like, okay, we got to wash and ream or we got to... Even if it's not explicitly a hole cleaning issue, I think, like you said, you start inducing losses or creating other drilling problems where you could see, I can thread a needle here where I don't have to do extra steps to get out of the hole, for example, or I have to do fewer cleanup cycles on bottom. You know, let's drill 10,000 feet a day and then spend two days circulating because there's still crap coming out of the hole and I got to back ream out. Yeah. Well, okay. You got to TD faster, but everything else took longer and we want rig release to rig release or or what have you. That's where we want to set our records, not just one way. Right. And it's interesting you say that. I just remembered, and now that it's earnings season, I was scouring through some earnings that have recently come out and there was an operator, and I mean, it's public. So EQT came out and released their earnings and I was looking at their deck and I didn't realize that in 48 hours, they were able to drill 18 some thousand feet. And I had to kind of scratch my head. I'm like, is that even possible? The Marcellus is probably one of the more interesting places because if you talk to our guys up there, like the Marcellus is the easiest thing to drill. I've been involved in wells over 45,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And one of the better conversations we had among everybody was the hole is letting us do this. We might be good engineers, but the fact of the matter is that you have to be in a place that's going to allow this. Yeah. And the Marcellus, you see a number of folks talking about 10,000 feet a day. We've been on those wells. What's fascinating is you go to like, it's very doable. It sounds exceptional, but it's become routine, which is awesome for them. I mean, yeah. some of these 20,000 foot laterals are drilled in five or six days. Like it's fabulous. Yeah. But you go back to like, their solids are like coffee grounds. Keeping that mud clean Because you may end up being the limiter if you've got a big LGS buildup and you're losing ROP because you've got excess fine solids that are limiting 
limiting your drill rate yeah. or just even unnecessary circulating pressure. They're fighting solids control like mad. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody's cracked the code, but I know the Utica is considered, or deep Utica especially, is considered quite a bit more difficult, more challenging. But I think there's also, what are the limiters for them versus like, do we think we're going to be drilling two miles in a day in the Permian or the Haynesville? And never say never, but generally, if we could get a couple hundred more feet an hour, I think most people would be beyond thrilled. Yeah. Maybe the other question on the drilling efficiency perspective is one size fits all. Right. The needs of a rig system up in the Northeast when you can drill 10,000 feet in a day are probably different than the kinds of needs in the Haynesville where you've got temperature and you've got harder to drill rock and some of these other things. Yeah. It's not that they're quote unquote bad or slow or anything like that. It's like the nature of those formations Mm -hmm. limit you in different ways. Yeah. The environment definitely plays a role in like the type of rock you're drilling. I would imagine too, is I wasn't a mud engineer drilling 10,000 feet in a day, but Mm -hmm. I always knew as a mud engineer, the higher the ROP, like you really had to stay on top of things because once you slowly start getting behind, whether it's mixing product, your solids control, your dilution, it can all come piling up on you pretty quick. And the last thing you want to do is tell the company man, hey, can we stop and circulate for three or four hours so I can get this mud in shape? Right. That's the last thing you want to yeah. hear, especially if you're rock and rolling and about to break a record. So that's another impact is really fine-tuning your treatments and making sure your solids control is in tip-top. Because if you're drilling 100 feet an hour, you don't have as much volume coming with the shakers. You have time to really clean them and look at them and change them out every once in a while. But if you've got 4X the volume coming across those things, well, you get a tiny hole, you can get a serious buildup of solids in your system in a very short period of time. And so it's, again, it's you're paying attention to that. And then the amount of volume you're having to dilute with, you might be diluting X amount of gallons per hour. Well, then that all of a sudden triples. Well, do you have enough to make it to TD? If you're going to TD by six o'clock tonight, not eight o'clock tomorrow morning. And those are some really interesting things. But Matt, I'm curious from your side of things, With regards to product solubility and mixability, would you ever see a point where we're drilling so fast that we would have to change the way we design products to make sure that they yield in time before the end of the well? It's a good question. I think to some degree, once again, never say never, there could be a point. I think a lot of it, just think about even the nature of mixing or the situation with drilling really fast. Guess what? You're making a lot of connections. So guess where your derrick hand is? Yeah, constantly making connections. Yeah. They say, hey, man, can you get somebody to help me check the shakers? Well, I pretty much live up on the monkey boards, so you let me know. Yeah, There's an element of, and I think one of the things is you learn this the most when you go from a place that drills really fast to really slow. Mm -hmm. And you're like looking around and you're like, wait, I've got like 30 minutes before we finish this stand. Mm-hmm. Oh, everybody just seems so much calmer out here. <laughs> but you get very used to this sort of hectic aspect of trying to think ahead because, as you mentioned, it can snowball on you. But on the treatment side, too, like trying to anticipate like, all right, well, if we're going to be drilling at a thousand feet an hour or whatever, what do I need to have going in the hopper right now so that <laughs> yeah. a thousand feet from now, which isn't that long, <laughs> I've got materials that are conditioned up. Yeah. That's where, you know, do automated mixing systems or even predispersed liquid or even just bleeding over premix. Having a premix going, you just keep throwing product in whenever you can and then bleed that over as dilution volume and make up some more. I think those sort of strategies become more and more pertinent the faster you go. And I think we know from a, a lot of places 
we have the equipment to do it. And going back to drilling efficiencies, even getting reliable tools of small hole size where mm-hmm. think about how much less dilution things are required if I can go six and an eighth hole versus eight and a half or yeah. that's another completion side. I have no idea if we want to drill longer laterals, does that smaller pipe do more friction? Like, do I actually need a bigger hole? You know, I've got more waste, more product. Yeah. There's trade-offs there. And I think that that parametric analysis can really help reveal where in the fluids realm we might struggle. Yeah. I think data acquisition has been really insightful. Just the mud skid that we published a paper on not that long ago with Payson and Exxon, where it was like, hey, if you just keep measuring this stuff automatically, you'll start to see behavioral stuff where, yeah, yeah you know, you're in a hurry, you slam it with Bayrite and your density jukes a little. But if everybody's watching and can see what's happening, we smooth all that out. We have tighter tolerances. We can do more and we don't have to change equipment at all. We just have to behave. Yeah. When we see those limiters or maybe even ones we didn't know about where it's like, okay, I can thread the needle tighter if I just watch these three levers. Right. We have more information and more ability to do that than we ever have before. I don't know if that means we have another big home run in drilling efficiency, but I think maybe a home run is formed from a single here, a single here, you know, some small ball Yeah. adding up. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It is sort of another cool topic is the automation piece. And again, I think we're years away from it, but I wonder if you get to a point where, because right now any mixing is done manually, unless you throw a toad on the pits and you crack open a valve, but you're still, it still requires someone to go up and do that stuff. I wonder if it gets to a point where everything is so efficient and it's like, we just don't have the manpower to keep up with the mixing. If at that point it'll spur the demand for like, hey, we need something to keep up with mixing because right now we just don't. And for them to hire more people is probably or like, you know, that can be against like, the rig contractor talking to the operator. Hey, we need another person to mix. And like, well, why don't you just have something, a machine do it? And yeah, maybe that eventually in time, that's how that goes. But it would be interesting at some point, you know, again, if that ends up leading into it. But I don't think we're quite there yet because we're able to attain. And fortunately, mud engineers do a good job of timing and what we're adding allows for some variance and like you don't have to be perfect of like this sack needs to be mixed at exactly eight seconds or whatever. So you can kind of play with it. But again, it just makes me think is like, if you're drilling so fast at some point, you're going to have to have some serious consistency with mixing. Cause if not, you could just gonna fall behind. And I don't know how you yeah. stay ahead of that, but to your point, like building premixes and then having something pump over at some point, I think that's going to be discussed and, and implemented to some degree. I mean, would you agree or? Yeah, it goes back to that like limiter concept. Eventually, if not adding products is the thing that's slowing my ROP and I'm losing hours yeah, because consistently that is the limiter, that's a pretty easy one to say, okay, well, what is the cost of labor? Or, okay, what is the cost of some equipment? I think the kind of robotic side of things is come plenty far enough along that offshore there are some of these systems with hmm. kind of mixed results it goes back to it like it's new equipment it's got to be maintained it's got to be repaired like yeah somebody spoke a long time ago on i don't think you're going to have fewer people on the rig you're just going to have different types of people because <laughs> yeah. like all of a sudden are you going to need an it person on every rig to make sure all these sensors are up and running? like another roused about it's a field electronics technician who can make sure all this stuff's going to stay up and running yeah I think the nature of work would continue to change. 
Yeah. It goes back to even are there simple basic solutions for us onshore that offshore it's like, yeah, you don't pick up a sack. Yeah, yeah. But we do get to that place where it's like everything's in totes or everything's in the packaging that this equipment can handle. Mm -hmm. We're far from done. I don't think anybody thinks we're finished. But I think it's really hard to figure out what comes next because it depends on the price of oil and it depends on the types of wells we need to drill. And the market's ever shifting. I think that big move for fully automated rigs in 2014, where all those things ended up being stacked and scrapped. Everybody said they wanted it. They just didn't want to pay for it or maintain it. (laughs) Isn't there a few right now or at least one or two operators playing with fully automatic rigs? Yeah, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but my observation has been that the definition of a fully automated rig isn't what... I think there was a time where people were talking fully automatic, like nobody needs to walk anywhere near it and everything is handled. Yeah, And I think the proof of concept equipment-wise and all that was out there, just the reliability and practicality of it never arrived or has yet to arrive. But I think a lot more of the conversation is about hot zone, like fully automated rig floors. Mm-hmm. So nobody has to go on the rig floor for pipe handling or anything like that. I think that is much more of what I've heard slash seen is a couple of operators announcing we've got fully okay. automated rigs. And then you look and it's, okay, nobody has to go on the rig floor, which is a huge safety plus, right? Yeah. And I think even from a consistency perspective, I remember offshore when they introduced all these automated systems and they were slower than manual. And so everybody was trying to like disable them and work around (laughs) them. And it just took some time and everything caught up. It was quality, safe, consistent. And now we're in a place where maybe your connection times are world-class if you are willing to give it up to the robots. (laughs) Yeah. No, it reminds me of a couple of instances. It was back in the day working as a rig hand. The rig was equipped with just, it was just a Kelly rig. And then we were drilling with Petro Canada in Southern Alberta. And they insisted that we get a top drive and tool pusher was like super old school. And he was like, no, I'm not drilling with that top drive. It's too slow. And so of course we drilled one well with it. And as you can imagine, it had all kinds of kinks and things we had to work through and it was slow. And Mm -hmm. then I think the next well, we ended up tearing it down and just going back to a Kelly. Our trip times were like doubles fast with the Kelly which nowadays, I don't know if there's any rigs out there unless they're like come out of the yard and whatever. Like if you go on a rig, 9% of it's going to have a top drive. It was like night and day difference. Like we were always waiting on something or a hydraulic hose would blow or we were waiting on a Tesco hand to come fix this and fix that. And our tool pushers, like you could tell it was like going nuts, but it was at the operator's request. It was kind of like, well, this is what you wanted and here's what you're going to get. And then I remember on a jackup, was blown away, but they didn't even have an auto driller when I was out there. So the driller actually was running the brake handle, like the entire tower. If we were drilling, it was like a couple hitches in, they ended up getting an auto driller and the driller had never seen it or he'd never been on a rig that had it. And he just thought it was like Christmas for him because yeah. he could finally sit there and more just evaluate and analyze what was happening instead of just sitting there on the brake handle. But it wasn't that long ago, I guess what I'm trying to say is, and so like, we've come a long ways in a pretty short period of time. And I mean, again, we'll be drilling wells in the U.S. for at least another few decades, I would imagine. And like in even five years from now, where things are going to be. And I say all that to say is like technology, although it moves slow, we feel like in oil and gas. But once it is adopted and proven, the potential of it to really improve goes a long ways. As you can see, if you were to graph footage per day over the years from, say, call it early 2000s till now, thanks to the shale revolution, like we've just been able to capture so much value in becoming so much more efficient. And then at the end of the day, the economics just work out that much better. Yeah, well, it's so interesting. I mean, 
Let's make this a metaphor for life, Justin. <laughs> I love it. Sometimes when I kind of feel like, where am I going? Yeah. You start kind of mapping through, this is sort of a motivational exercise of like looking at where you were 10 years ago, where you were 20 years ago, and what yeah. you thought you were going to do, where you thought you were going to be. And kind of looking at this very nonlinear path your life actually followed. And you can be like, wow, I'm very fortunate. Like you couldn't have scripted the way these, like this isn't the book I would have written, but wow. And I think in many ways, when we're in the midst of these things, I think especially because drawing this metaphor, you get on social media and somebody's selling you how great their life is. It makes you say, well, well, gee, maybe I need more. Maybe I'm doing something. Where'd I screw up? Yeah. There's that. But in the same way in the oil field, everybody's always selling. This new fangled technology is the greatest thing ever. How many times we hear the story and then it fizzles out because it overpromised, underdelivered. But then slowly but surely, a few years down the line, the hiccups get worked out, it matures, and we forget all the like some people remember the crummy stuff, but like all we know is we look back and we're like, holy crap, we're drilling way better with than we ever thought we could. Yeah. We don't remember a lot of the process that got you there. But if you look back 10 years, you're like, whoa. Yeah. Like, wow, that was sort of like dinosaur era stuff we were doing. Yeah. We forget how the sausage is made a lot. We're sold something that's better looking and it's claimed to be far more revolutionary than it is. And even if it is revolutionary, it is not mature. And so wherever it's at now is not where it needs to get to. Yeah. And it will get there if there's justification for it. But that's not in 18 months, all of a sudden we had X and everything changed. Those don't come along very often. Not to say they never do. Yeah. That's claimed way more often than it delivers. Yeah. It's a fascinating point. And while you're going through it all, it always seems like it's taking a long time. But when you look at the grand scheme of things, it's like things happen at such a rapid pace. And we take it for granted too. Right? Like some of the luxuries we have is whether it's here in this office or even on a drilling rig, you don't realize <laughs> some of the things that people were doing not too long ago that... We're a lot more dangerous. We're a lot more labor intensive. Yeah. Which arguably is making rig hands soft. Sorry, I'm going to say that because I was one. But yeah. <laughs> just kidding. These kids these days. <laughs> yeah. Back when I was a rig hand. Yeah. Sounding old and saying that, I'm sure everyone's like, ah, shut up. But again, I think we have to appreciate how far we've come and really just be optimistic about the future. And although we might stub our toe and spend a little more money than we have to every once in a while. Yeah. Again, we're making huge strides and I'm excited for the future. And so with regards to drilling efficiencies, I would assume that we're close to like maximizing it. But I mean, shoot, people thought that probably a decade ago. So I don't know, maybe we'll be drilling 20,000 feet in a day, which would just be absolutely mind blowing. But yeah. which to that point, like, I think we'd have to completely change the backyard. Like, I just don't think we could, from a fluids management and solids control perspective, I think we're going to have to evolve. If we're going to keep increasing the efficiency, we're going to have to figure out a way to handle all that stuff going across the shape. Well, think about pipe, like even yeah, how much pipe you can put in a Derek. There's a lot of this stuff. I think it's fascinating. Another suggestion, well, suggestion to listeners. Yeah. I've been trying to be on Twitter less. So I've been reading 50 pages per day out of a book, Yeah, which means you. I That's read awesome. like a book a week. I say it a lot, so I'll keep doing it. Like, it'll keep the pressure on. It's been good for my mental health. It's been good for, like, nice. education. You know, just relax and read. So I read The Boom. You know, it's about hydraulic fracturing, the advent and everything, by a Wall Street Journal reporter who's kind of skeptical or whatever. And he tries the good and the bad of the impact on communities versus the prosperity that it brings. And anyways, there's books like that where it's 2012, and they're talking about all of this new horizontal drilling. Like this wow. stuff is boring to us now, right? It's mundane. Yeah. And these people are talking about it like it is 
transforming the world. Yeah. It's expected now. Yeah. And so I think even then you're looking at a book that was written 10 years ago and you're like, who are these people? <laughs> you know? Seems archaic. So I'm onto the frackers. That's this week's book. Wow. And a uh, similar story. It's neat, right? Because then a lot of times you'll read a book that, like a business book that was mm -hmm. published maybe 10 years ago. And a lot of it is still fairly relevant. Yeah. But when you look at like, Again, then you share point. A lot of that stuff seems like, wow, was this like in like 1920? What are we talking about here? It's an interesting conversation. And I encourage the listeners, again, if you've made it this far, if you have anything to add, please reach out. It'd be cool to highlight some feedback on the next episode if we get any. But with regards to that, Matt, that's about all I can think of. I don't have any other questions. Any other thoughts on this topic? No, I mean, it's something you can think about and wrestle with all day. Like, where are we headed? And then yeah. like, wow, we've gotten pretty far. But I think the minute we start thinking that we've arrived, we're probably falling behind. You know what I mean? Like the marketplace of ideas is infinite. Yeah. Who knows what we'd be talking about in 10 years of like, holy. Yeah. I really thought you'd only drill 10,000 feet in a day. Man, we'll have to mark our calendars. And if A, for one, if AES is still around and B, we're still around in 10 years, I'm going to put a calendar invite uh -huh. on our calendars <laughs> for 10 years for us, you and I, to like recap this episode and talk about how far we've come in 10 years. Yeah. So if you stick along for 10 years, everybody, buckle up because we're doing it. With that in mind, stay curious, be practically optimistic, and the opportunities are endless. That's yes. all I got to say for now. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, anyways, appreciate the support, folks. Follow us on LinkedIn. Connect with AES Drilling Fluids. I've got our YouTube channel. Like I always say, there's a lot of good content on there. If you're looking for more information on like different products or what we're up to as a company, our website is packed full. It's very easy to navigate through. Big shout out to our marketing department, Addy, and the rest of the team. And with that said, be safe. Until next time. See you guys. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.